to the Kyber Pass podcast. I'm your host, Paul Metzger, bringing you conversations with improvisers that have performed at the Kyber Pass Cafe Thursday evening concert series. As always, these conversations and the presentation through podcast form is made possible by the generous support of the Kyber Pass Cafe, Grand Avenue in St. Paul. Voted number one Middle Eastern restaurant in the Twin Cities. This episode we bring you Pat Moriarty, alto saxophonist. He performed in duet with percussionist Phil Hay. We have a sample from the concert to present, followed by the interview. It was a pleasure to sit down with Pat, discuss his history and origin. dating back to 1970 where he appeared on the local performance jazz scene. Please enjoy Pat Moriarty. Thank you. 
Matt Moriarty, thank yeah. you so much for coming to play tonight and be part of the podcast as well. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had you uh, play at the Kyber yet, and that seems a shame as you're one of the, you're one of the cats in town. And... Uh, we hope to remedy that starting tonight. All right, that'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I'd like to kind of uh, get to know your background a little bit briefly. Sure. Like, uh, where do you, you come from? I come from the northern suburbs of Minneapolis. Um, okay. I was raised in Blaine, went to Coon Rapids High School. Okay, up that way. Yeah, Anthony Cox and I went to high school together. No shit. He's two years younger than me, yeah, uh -huh. but we went to high school together. That's crazy. I actually did a little bit of playing uh, back at that point. Yeah? A little bit, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a young cat before you're playing horn, what kind of caught your interest about music or that sort of the first glimmers that you saw that led you into... Yeah. Um... Well, I think as a as a kid, I always liked I always liked I always liked music. Mm -hmm. um, my parents had well, they had some Perry Como, and they had <laughs> some you know. I, that's how I learned that's how I learned like Devil in the Deep Blue Sea, and then they had some old forty fives like Chattanooga Choo Choo, and um, and some things that were like you know they were they were pop things, but they had a little bit of jazz flavor. Some of some of those things did. Uh huh. And I, I love that music. Also, my dad was a very good whistler. Or uh, is a very good whistler, actually, dig. still. And, um, and um, I, I liked whistling, too, quite a bit. More than singing when, mm -hmm. I, was, when, I, was, when I was a uh -huh. kid. So, so I, you I, took after the whistle that your pops was yeah, uh -huh. blasting. Yeah, right. Okay, so uh, that's one of those whistles, then. Uh, I'm th like, did people whistle more in the 50s? That's what I remember. I think so. And then now, no one gives a fuck about whistling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. But, well, you know, the Andy Griffith show was on, and that, oh, the, the whole theme song was whistled. Yeah. Right? They yeah. gave everybody permission. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, when I was, you know, when I was older, I'd be walking, I'd, I'd have memorized Miles Davis solo or something like that, and yeah. I'd be walking down the street whistling the Miles Davis solo. Yeah. You know, um, but that's, uh, yeah, so... So that that was like the first approach to music, and then uh, where I went to school, you started band in sixth grade. If you were going to start band, uh huh, and, and you sort of felt, I'll try band, or was yeah, it? I, yeah, I thought I'd try band. My mom had mm -hmm. played in band when she was in high school. My parents are from Pine City, Minnesota. I know which Pine is, City, yeah, right? It's right and by uh, Lake Pokegama. Yes, it certainly is. A little is. bit south. Yes, did a little bit of agate picking on Lake Pekegamo when I was a kid, mm -hmm. um, and around there. But, yeah. um, I did some time up that way. The, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, they're, they're from up there. My mom had played saxophone. Actually, she played a bunch of, she tried different instruments. She ended yeah. up being a saxophone player. Mm -hmm. And after a little thinking about it, I thought I'd try that. And um, So when you, in sixth grade, are going down to the band room, you're saying I want to try playing sax. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember. That's... I have no idea what I thought about that. Right. Actually, but... you know. I mean, right. But um, 
very luckily, my mom's parents actually had Louis Armstrong and Count Basie records, and also Muggsy Spanier. Okay. Um, and so, and I eventually got those records. But uh, the, uh, and so that's I, a, just to say that's a beautiful moment when the the records. Yes. And then they come to you, and then that weird feeling too of I don't know if you ran into this, but like I remember getting like this uh, Ella Fitzgerald record from my mom's collection. Mm -hmm. She just thought it was so odd that a young person would want their mom's record, you know? Like yeah, yeah. But it was just that's how you could get them, you know? Like. Yeah. Before you knew how to go to a store yeah, or a library anything or anything, yeah. And then you know, frankly, by the time I was in seventh grade, mm -hmm. um, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass was a huge thing. My mo my mother had all of those records, everyone, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and there was some there was a little bit of tangential jazz stuff that you could get from that too, sure. you know, because they yeah. had a, they had a traditional jazz feel on some things. So mm -hmm. so and that um, and I like to play by ear. Okay. Um, so those things kind of got me started in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I listened to mostly traditional jazz for the, for, until I was about 16. And so what would that, like what, you had Louis Armstrong. Now Louis Armstrong, Basie, Muggsy Spanier, I loved his cornet playing. Okay. And um, then there was a radio show on Sundays called Dixie Date, which was all traditional stuff. Okay. And then I heard the local guys around here too, like Doc Evans and Dick Pendleton and those guys. Okay. And then um, also um, Preservation Hall Band mm -hmm. used to come here in the summer every year too. Yep. And so I mostly I mostly listened to and emulated that, and actually had sort of a traditional jazz combo when I was in junior high school, mm -hmm. um, as as kind of a starting point. But you know, as a kid, I was also listening to King Curtis and Herb Alpert and other kinds mm -hmm. of like pop music that had some sort of jazz uh, mm -hmm. connection to them too but always that yeah and then yeah so mm -hmm. that's it's kind of so up to that point that's what i was listening to so when did it turn because uh, there's that moment where it turns serious where it's like i'm going all in on this thing yeah yeah that's, do you remember that yeah more or less you know I think I was about 16 years old, and mm -hmm. um, I think I, I had two tracks going. One was um, music, and the other one was I was really interested in aviation. I've always liked anything that flies. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, eventually I, it came down to the big decision was, you know, I could have, I had a little, I could get a little bit of money, and basically it was kind of like I figured I could either buy a, a professional grade saxophone mm -hmm. or I could earn a pilot's license damn so I got the horn and so at that point it's it's like for sure you know it's yeah. like I could I could choose a lot of different things I know about a lot of different things but I really got to do this you know you went yeah that's beautiful it, when you think of it like so you're young you're 16 and you're really weighing out heavy shit as a young guy really yeah trying to find a path yeah yeah so. yeah that's beautiful and so you go down and you get like a nice horn yeah you must have 
you'd been the happiest cat. Oh yeah, it was great. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Were you playing a school instrument before that? No, or? no. I was playing. Um, I was playing a kind of a midline a Selmer Signet uh, for a while. Before that, I had an old used um, alto. Mm -hmm. My parents had got those uh, for me, and actually. They helped me out with my pro horn too. You know, we we yeah. did a deal on that, and I was actually 17 by the time I actually acquired that. But but that's kind of like that was that was sort of ages of 16 and 17 is kind of like when the process more or less crystallized. You know? All right, so that comes into your life, and then what's happening? So you're still in band. You're in high school, mm -hmm. yeah. And then are you interested in? Do you have a teacher at that? Like, a, are you studying with anyone I, outside you know, of I was high school? A, I was a junior in high school when I finally started studying with somebody. Yeah. Um, Coon Rapids High School, late 60s, early, you know, up to about 1970 there. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people studied privately. Yeah. You know, there'd be 200 kids in the band program. I Probably not more than 10 of them took lessons. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that was, but, and I was always a... I've always been a little bit autodidactic, and I'm always like, you know, I can figure this out. And then I realized, you know what, you're not getting the results that you need. Yeah. And then somebody and some other kid says, well, you should study with so-and-so. And, -so. and yeah. so I say, okay, well, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you can still be autodidactic if yes. with a little bit more information that comes yep. in and someone, you know, you don't have to give up your whatness. Right. You know, uh but I know I know what you're saying. Like the 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 reluctance is understanding. Yeah. Understandable mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. yeah. Tig. And so how did that go? You start running through. Yeah. You know, so then yeah, I started. I had a pretty good teacher in um, in high school, and you know I started you know studying out of the standard technique books and yeah. stuff like that, and uh, getting the scales together, and you know developing developing a technique yeah. <laughs> and, yeah and also actually got to be pretty decent altissimo player when i was in high school all right um and it was always you know i was always the weird kid who wanted to, to be different than everybody else so i i i you know if it's it's if it seemed like there was something strange that you could do with the saxophone then i was i was all over that yeah. you know i was, I was like, <laughs> right away you thought that was all right so what year is that like is this taking you it's about 1970 or so. I okay. graduated high school in 71. Okay, so you're out of high school in 71. Yeah. And I mean, from what little I know about you, you hooked up with Phil in like 73? Is yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not too long after. No, it's not. You know, by the, as far as my listening, you know, by the time I was out of high school, you know, I mm -hmm. was listening to mostly modern music and I was listening to Ornette Coleman and Eric Dolphy and, and middle period Coltrane and such, you know. And that, then by the time... That's a lot of, that's a lot of terrain to cover. About the, yeah. From Louis Armstrong and I think to that, Ornette. And I, I went to the University of Minnesota for a while. Um, to study music? To study or music. To study, okay. To study music, yeah. And, um, you know, on records then, you know, of course... Discount Records, Oblivion Records. Yeah. Oblivion Records bought first record I think I bought there was Anthony Braxton's For Alto. Damn! Look right. at you going like, down. So, All right. Okay. <laughs> so, which gave you know so you, you learned a lot about what you probably should know if you're going to get in. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. like holy cat, what what are these guys doing? You know. Yeah. And um, so uh, Phil, um, 
he was actually he wasn't around when I first went to college. He was he was in Hawaii mm-hmm. for a year or two, um, but we had a, a mutual friend. Phil went to Roseville Area High School, or actually it was um, Ramsey High School at that time in those days. Oh, um, okay, and um, now it's Roseville Area High School. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, um, there was a oh, trumpet th- player. That's where you, you taught. Yeah, I also okay. yeah I also ended up teaching okay, there for, that's a, for a really long time. That's a fast forward, but <laughs> yeah. that's an odd coincidence. Yeah, it is. Okay, but a lot of really good young players came out of uh, the Roseville schools in in those years. A lot. Okay. And actually, they still do. Um, but um, mm-hmm. anyway, so there was a trumpet player who had been a classmate of Phil's at Roseville, mm-hmm. and I think it was it was getting like the end of the school year and. Um, and Jack Angerhofer, the trumpet player, was saying, well, you know, I, I have this friend who's coming back from Hawaii, plays drums. Mm-hmm. You guys ought to get together. He's, he's, he's great, you know. And I said, yeah, you know, cool. And mm-hmm. people are always telling you that there's some great player that they know. I mean, even when, yeah. you, even when you're 20 years old, somebody's been is yeah. telling you that all the time. Yeah. And, and usually they are good players, but yeah. it's not, you know. And so there was, uh, they said, he said, there's this jam session over at this guy's house, and mm-hmm. it's more of a rock jam session than a jazz jam session. It's more, you know, um, he asked me to come over, so I went over, and so we're just, we're just improvising, you know, over, you know, riffs and, and modes yeah. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, as, as I'm playing, I'm just realizing this, this drummer I've, is the hardest listening musician I have ever been around I had ne- I had never had an experience where somebody was actually that attentive to all of the music as yeah. that it just that was I mean yes he played he played great but that yeah. was not what was important mm-hmm. the important thing was like wow this guy is an incredible listener yeah um, man so and so we started talking on it while we're everybody's taking a break and then we started playing together so there it was yeah wow and it and I know what you mean, like you can, people can hip you to this player or that, but there really has to be that certain connection to make it work for you, you know, that mm-hmm. it's someone you could actually play with and, and get on with in that yeah. way. And uh, that's awesome, you two came together, made that recording in... 77, and then released it in 78. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's where your history starts as a duo, in that in yeah. that early 70s mm-hmm. uh, time period where... My understanding thing, like, in the early 70s would be people were less like really dedicated inside a genre where you like the jam session you're talking about where it's like some rock bass and some jazz bass people were I think more open-minded or is that what was happening I I don't really know I mean that was just that one session and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and I you know went to other there was I mean there were just all kinds of things I mean Eddie Ed Berger used to have um jam sessions at his apartment all the time and that yeah. was you know we just we played bebop you know yeah and um and then uh, a lot of the um a lot of the parks you know down and especially at least the ones i went to on, on the south side mm-hmm. uh gene adams the trumpet player was yeah. 
was always hosting those, and there was all kinds of people, and mostly playing, you know, pretty standard jazz repertoire, but, like, all kinds of people were in there, like, trying yeah. out their stuff, you know. God, I haven't thought about Gene forever, man. I, I hadn't mean, either until I, just <laughs> I played with him, like, in, in like, the mid-70s, uh, uh, some kind of a theater-based thing that he was in and I was in and stuff. Right. And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it's just a little, put, it's pulling me back into a time thing a little bit, hearing his name Yeah, again. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, uh, then what's happening? You uh, there's duo work with Phil, but what what else was happening? Because I so we didn't start out with a duo. I mean, mm -hmm. we actually started out by forming um, a quartet, more like mm -hmm. or a trio. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, originally uh, a friend of Phil's from Roseville, Tom Heinig, was the bass player, mm -hmm. and then Anthony Cox was the guitar player. I would love to hear some of that. And, um, but then it wasn't too long after that that it was. I think he, I think we had we worked with Anthony for maybe like six months and maybe played like a gig with him or something like that. Yeah. Because our whole idea was that we'd have to rehearse for two years before we got a job. Mm -hmm. But we actually managed to do it in like four months. So. And, <laughs> so who who had that idea of like two years of woodshedding? I don't know. I think we all had it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, it was just—it yeah. just seemed so. Whole, the music just seemed so big. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, so Anthony ended up getting a bass, and so we didn't want to have two bass players. Yeah. And so then it was a horn, and then we ended added a second drummer, a guy named Jim Jim Pickerel, who also was a Roseville kid who later on went out, uh, ended up living in San Francisco, mm. and. Um, in some kind of business, but playing on the side all the all the way along. So, what are you guys doing then? Is that are you doing tunes? Are you doing well, original with that, stuff? With or? that with that one, we're doing we're doing original tunes, and we're mm -hmm. doing and we're doing like or, we're doing Ornette Coleman tunes. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a you know, Bobby Bradford tune, and a, you know, and a, a Your Lady by Coltrane was part of that book. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it was just basically. There was an emphasis on Ornette early on, mm -hmm. but also it was just like whatever tune happened to grab us, you know, and think, yeah. you know, and um, and so so it was like that. And then later on, we actually had a band that was only Ornette and Monk tunes. Oh, really? Yeah, and that would be that would have been me and Phil with Tom Hubbard on bass, okay, and Homer Lambrecht on trombone, and. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did uh, a bunch, we did a lot with that, but somewhere shortly out in the earlier 70s, um, we started doing, we started doing a duet thing. Mm -hmm. And the duet thing um, was mostly free improvisation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we rehearsed a lot. Yeah, man. Um, you know, I mean, I think Phil and I probably had three long rehearsals together in some band or other every week for years. Yeah. You know, just always always rehearsing. And so you knew each other's vocabulary. Oh, yeah. You could, he could read you, he, you could read him and know where things were going. And, and yeah. that comes through on the recording. Yeah, I, I think, think um, one thing that we, I think Phil would agree with this too is especially through the duo thing, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways we, we sort of taught each other how to play. Yeah. You know, um, we we learned a lot mm -hmm. from from working on that. 
and we had a fantastic time. You yeah, know. I bet. Yeah. And so that's sort of... Uh, Tom Hubbard ended up with Ed Berger, and so did Phil. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, where do things go for you outside of that? Oh well, they went in a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. I mean, also in the in the mid 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 to late seventies, mm-hmm. I was with Dean Granros's band Lapis for a few years. Okay, I and love that, Dean's band. That was a great great band it was homer lambrecht again on trombone and dean yeah. on guitar mm-hmm. jay epstein on drums yeah no bass well there was a bass but that that didn't last long <laughs> okay. um, and, and and that was all that was all about playing dean's tunes yeah and he was just right unbelievable composition some were incredibly difficult yeah and then um then i also ended up playing with sid farrar quite a bit that okay. was it. i was a regular member of his quartet for uh, quite a while, so I mean, for that mid late '70s period was very. I was in a lot of bands at the same time, and, and they, there were places to play. And they all and they all played. Yeah. Uh, part of it, you know, we still invented stuff. Uh-huh. I curated a series at the Guild of Performing Arts, where so there was a jazz concert at the Guild every month during some from September through May. Oh, okay. And they were mostly groups that I was in or my groups, but then sometimes once or twice a year I would have somebody's band in there mm-hmm. um, that I wasn't in. Yeah. Uh, Anthony and Phil and a guitar player named Mark Meistrovich mm-hmm. had um, had a band that was called Air. Okay. Before the other Air. Yeah. Uh, came out and uh, that that was a great band. Uh huh. So there was yeah the that late seventy I mean that was when we were in our early and mid twenties and stuff like yeah. that and we had. Yeah. And we had a tremendous amount of energy, and not so much on the responsibility side as you know you come to have later. You know how it goes, yeah. and so yeah. And so there was there was a lot going on there, and then um, you know a little bit later on, um, I went in a different direction with some of my stuff. We had something called the Pat Moriarty Ensemble, which was three horns and a piano. Mm-hmm. And that was a project that basically went from 1982 to 1989 or something okay, like that. Okay, that's long term. So what do you got for horns? Me and Homer. Okay. And then um, eventually it settled down to Robert Rumbles on trumpet. Okay. Robert eventually went out to Wesleyan, and now he's somewhere out in Wyoming. Okay. Um, yeah, he's on a Anthony Braxton big band record, actually. Okay. Um, and then Ellen Lease on piano. So... Me and Homer and Robert and Ellen, so, okay. and that was all original stuff. Mm. And that band did more things that were uh, theatric in nature. Okay. You know, do some you know like uh, piece for vacuum cleaners or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, humdrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, so that was that was a long term project. Um, I, um, we ended up having one piece on a. Um, a Minnesota Composers Forum collaboration, oh, a okay. CD called Free Fall. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Steve Tibbetts had something on it, too. Oh, okay. And now, did you overlap with Steve much? I mean, because no, he was, no. he I was mean, cooking we were, at we, that time. Yeah, I know. And we, I think, I'm sure well, I knew about him, but, you know, mm-hmm. our, our circles didn't intersect. Um, no. Yeah. And um, so I was doing that, and I actually got involved in 
Uh, some more like new music things, graphic mm -hmm. notation scores. Okay. Homer and another guy, David Means, were both writing graphic notation scores. Mm -hmm. uh, Homer wrote a series for me, mm -hmm. and um, I was writing graphic scores and stuff like that. And so that was kind of interesting. Do you remember when New Music America was here in the early 80s? Uh, no, I don't remember that. Yeah, the, you know, that was, uh, was, it was this festival, you know, like week-long avant-garde music festival that would be one a city would have it one year then it would move to another city and then mm -hmm. the next year you know so no i don't like remember that, that it was through. must have been 83 and so i was worked with david means on that i mean they had everybody philip glass was here but the art ensemble of chicago here anthony yeah. braxton had a solo gig i mean it was okay it was it was a big it was a big thing all right, that's the heavy shit. Okay. And then we, and then we, uh, but all us locals ended up getting gigs on it too. Mm -hmm. I, I had a triple trio at the Lake Harriet Bandshell that was a free improv group. Oh wow! Each, each trio triple was, trio. Each, each trio was one horn was was horn based drums. Oh damn! <laughs> that was that was that was a one off, you know. But, yeah. Um, but so there was yeah. So into into the, into that part of the '80s, there was also just a lot of a lot of action yeah. going on. So to get back a little oh, yeah. bit to you were saying you don't uh, never really took to reading charts as much. You like to memorize yeah, I, yeah. a line. Mm -hmm. And how did that how did that I'm this is just like a mechanics question yeah. of how would you think like when you're playing in combo, mm -hmm. um, are you are you thinking about like the like the chord changes or do you like to be that you're thinking of what the melody the original melody is and go off that or where, where was your improvisational mind or like before the graphical scores and stuff oh, is it um you know i my preference is to think about the melody mm -hmm. and you know i can i can think about the changes i'm hardly a great changes player you know mm -hmm. but um that was never quite the idea but right. so and then of course um, so anyway so i prefer to i prefer to work from melody and mm -hmm. and the kind of kid i was too when i you know i started liking being interested in jazz yeah. the next thing i would do is go to the library and see if there are any books on it yeah and so i read a lot and you know i read a lot about traditional jazz too and then and you know the um one of the ideas was that there's they made some author made a dichotomy between harmonic improvisation and melodic improvisation. Okay. To me, from what I was listening to and stuff like that, and my own predilections, that made a lot of sense. Okay. And, um, and then Lee Konitz really has something like that. You know, his uh, system ten acts, ten steps to an act of pure inspiration. Mm-hmm. Number one, step number one is play the melody, mm -hmm. and then basically. I don't know this system very well, but it's, you know, it's more a matter of different degrees of embellishment or moving away from the original melody while retaining mm -hmm. the melody. So, so yeah, I'd, that's, that's my, that's my bias. Yeah. So that's where you come. So it seems real natural that, uh, I would think graphical scores, you would have welcomed that with open arms. Yeah, uh, because mm -hmm. it's it's a way that you can communicate and understand in combo without the 
didacticism of like this is the exact thing like right. for for a, a freer mind you know uh, yeah yeah so so then what happens just to kind of fast forward then covering a lot of years but i think we have to wrap up so you can eat and set up oh, yeah. and stuff uh, well i mean what happens is you know um Starting in the very late 70s, I mm -hmm. started having a private teaching studio. Okay. And I was doing that, and it got pretty big. I was, I was, I was working with about 65 individual students one-on-one -on -one oh, every week. So That's heavy. Yeah. That's what you call making a living teaching. Yeah, it um, is. You know, I mean, and, um, and, and gigging and, and blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then we started, Ellen and I started having a family, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I'll just, the, the straight story is when um, my oldest son was about two years old, I thought, in three years he is going to go to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. I work every night until nine o'clock and half a Saturday teaching lessons. He will go to school. I will never see him again. That's right. You need yeah. to change. So I went back to school and started, doing, and started public school teaching. Okay, right on. Which very luckily was like the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a great job. You you loved it. Oh yeah, it, it's yeah. Actually, I'm subbing tomorrow. Um, <laughs> Look at that. You can't stay away. That's Pretty great. Much. Yeah. Um so yeah, I will, I just subbed for a couple of my friends, but anyway, um So yeah, so that and so and you rolled in that. I mean, you spent like 3 decades yeah, at I, Roseville. Yeah, I taught 30 years. I well, I taught like I taught 26 years in Roseville. I was in West St. Paul during elementary band uh, oh, for four okay. years before that. So I had 30 years of teaching, mm -hmm. starting when I was 36. That's mm -hmm. what I was. Um, yeah. So you know, as as the you know at the, at, with the, as the, fa the family at certain stage and the job slowed things down quite a bit. Yeah. But they never really completely stopped. Mm -hmm. And then. Um, so what maintains through that? So. You you have that steady gig, yeah, of teaching music, mm -hmm. and then was there room? I assume then to keep projects kind of going and but more casually, or how did you yeah, approach that? Part? Not as many of them. Uh -huh. We um, Ellen and I started uh, a quartet, so just alto sax and piano, bass and drums. There you go. And yeah. and started working with that, and the quartet evolved over time, and then we made it a quintet mm -hmm. and um, players changed around and stuff like that and then it eventually crystallized into something that was really working uh, quite well All right and um, then um, and then we had a couple of we had a couple of changes um, you know somebody moving away this and yeah. that and whatever yeah. and um, and then so we were trying out different people for a while, and like, okay, this is good, this is not. And um, we continued as a quintet for a little while, and then we dropped the second horn. Okay. Um, and it sort of evolved into the quartet that we have now. Okay. And wow. Right now, the quartet is it's me and Ellen, and Chris Bates is on bass, and okay. Doc Husseru is on drums. Yeah. yeah so. Wow, man. Let so, me let me book you cats here. And so that thing, and that is all. And that's uh, Ellen and I write the book for the band. Okay, that, that's that's it. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that sounds cool. That brings us, hopefully, around to your performance tonight. Yeah. With Phil Hay in duo, and 
Man, thanks so much for doing it and being in the podcast, and I'm really looking forward to hearing you guys play. Well, thanks, Paul. And so again together we attain terminus. The Kuiper Pass Podcast. Pat Moriarty. He performed a duet with Phil Hay, percussionist. And it was a pleasure for me to meet and talk with him about music and about where he's at with improvisation, his history, upbringing, early experiences dating back to 1970. And thank you for listening to the podcast. You are, in fact, the few interested in conversation, ideas, thoughts, the alpha and the omega of improvisation. I've been your host, Paul Metzger. And until next time, good evening.